you guys remember um, when we ended last week in chapter 2, Malachi's audience were questioning God's justice because of the widespread evil that was around them. Well, this week, we're going to look at God's response that consists of three main topics. A coming messenger, a rebuke about dishonest giving, and an encouraging message to those who belong to him. This morning, I've titled, uh, I've titled this morning's message, It's Absolutely Worth It, because this chapter will show you that it's absolutely worth it to believe in the coming of the Lord, to give from a grateful heart, and to faithfully serve Him. So before we get into God's Word, let's ask Him to speak with us, uh, to us this morning. Heavenly Father, you're... This worship again showed us how good and amazing you are. How good you have been to us, how good you are to us, and how good, how good you will continue to be to us. Lord, we thank you for all you've done so far here with the church, Lord, all the people that we've met, all the people that um, have come and gone, Lord. Um, they've definitely been a blessing to, to us, and we pray that wherever they're at now, that there'll be a blessing wherever they may be, Lord. Lord, so right now we ask that you speak to us through your mighty word, that questions will be answered, maybe some of the same questions that are being brought up here. Lord, may they be answered. Speak to all of us in our own individual way, Lord. Speak to us as a church as we move on to our next stage of ministry and serving, Lord, and, and being a light to this community. Or strengthen us. Heal those that need to be healed, Lord. Encourage those that need to be encouraged. Fill this room, Lord, with your spirit. And speak to us mightily. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The word of God says, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old. I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against um, those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and those who deny justice to, the re justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. The Lord responded in verse, to verse 17 with a promise of judgment. And with it, justice would come. The first aspect of that promise is a prediction of a, of, a, 
of the coming of two different messengers. The first one, my messenger, refers to Elijah, who is to announce the coming of the Messiah, which was prophesied in um, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 5. Referring to John the Baptist, Jesus said this in Matthew 11:10. This is the one about whom is written, whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare the way, your way before you. Now, even though he wasn't literally Elijah, John the Baptist functioned in the role of Elijah as a, uh, at, at Messiah's first coming. Ultimately, Jesus also tells us in Matthew 17, 11, that Elijah will literally fulfill this prediction when he comes back. Nevertheless, for those who recognize John came in spirit, in the spirit and power of Elijah and were willing to accept him as the one, him in that role, saw this as further evidence of God's promises being fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the second messenger, called the messenger of the covenant, was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself whom the Jewish people were anticipating. Now, the reason Jesus is described as a messenger of the covenant is because he fulfilled all the demands of the covenant in his life, suffered the penalties in his death, and rose from the dead under to usher in a new covenant of grace. So you see, all, all of them, all the covenants of the New Testament history Unite in pointing to Jesus, to Jesus Christ and his marvelous work of redemption. All those stories in the, in the Old Testament, they all point to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the phrase, you delight in, was probably ironical. It was irony, the irony being that this promised messenger, these people hoped would come soon and make things right would be the same one they'd call out to be crucified after he did arrive. Now, having told all those who doubted God's, that God's justice, that the Messiah would indeed come, Malachi also reminded them in verses 2 to 4 that judgment would fall not just on their enemies, but on them as well. Speaking to those who were deserving judgment because of their evil ways, my Malachi rhetorically asks these two questions. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? Well, if you've read the Bible, if you read what the Bible says concerning that day, it says no one will be able to endure. And all will fall in worship when the Messiah is revealed and when he comes in judgment, he will be like a refiner's fire. Now, metaphorically, this signifies the elimination of sinful behavior through the hot fire of God's judgment of wrath and wrath. And like launderer's bleach, also metaphorically signifying the spiritual purification of sin. Now, verse 3 also informs the priest that when the Lord does come back, when he does return, the sons of Levi will be refined 
gold and silver. Now for what reason? Why would they be refined like gold and silver? Well, he tells them in verse 4, so they can present offerings of holiness and righteousness that will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. Verses 5 and 6 then explained that when judgment comes, it will be against the sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. But God's promise to Israel will keep them from being destroyed. Those crying out for justice must remember that based on God's justice, Israel should be consumed, utterly destroyed in judgment. But even though they break his covenant, he will never break his promise. God's unchanging faithfulness will cause him to, will cause him to persevere and purify his people. Now, if you look at the first six verses carefully, you'll see that there's two prophecies about Jesus Christ. The first coming in in grace and mercy, which we can read about in the Gospels. And the second prophecy is about his second coming. Now, what does Malachi tell us that day will be like? Well, verse 3 tells us that when Jesus comes back, it will be sudden and unexpected. And his purpose will be in will be the judging of sinners and to establish his earthly kingdom on earth. Jesus said it would be unexpected. Here's what he said in in Matthew 24, verse 36. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. Paul also described it in this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So you see, it's going to be unexpected. No one's going to know when it's going to happen. It can happen right now. It can happen a second from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. Nobody knows. Only God, the Father himself, knows. And when it comes, people are going to be surprised. So, again, are you ready? Are you ready for that time? Are you ready for that hour? Now, going back to verse 1, Malachi, in Malachi, we're also told it will come to an unprepared people. Again, the phrase, you delight in, suggests that the Jews in Malachi's day were hoping that the day of the Lord would come soon, not realizing what a terrible day it would be for the whole earth. When the Jewish people of that time read the prophets, they not only paid attention to the promises of blessing, they only paid attention to those things, to the promises of blessings, and not the warnings of judgment. They rejoiced in the prophecies of a coming king and his glorious kingdom, but they overlooked the prophecies that described worldwide terror when the wrath of God is poured out on sinners. The Israelites were not unlike some Christians today who talk about the coming of the Lord as though seeing him, seeing him will be more like the hype of a visiting celebrity. Oh, check it out. Jesus is coming. 
hey, we need to all be ready. We need to throw a big party. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. A glorious time. Yes, it is, but not for everybody. It's going to be a horrible time for sinners here on earth. Standing at the judgment seat of Christ will be an experience like no other. Even though we know we have placed, we have a place reserved for us in heaven, it's still going to be an experience like no other, having to know that we're going to be judged before God Almighty. In verse 5, we're told that the second coming of the Lord will be an unsparing, there will be an unsparing judgment. The list of sinners in verse in that verse gives us some idea that many of the practices that were going on in Malachi's time will be going on also during the end times. God's law forbade sorcery because it means trafficking with demons. The satanic revival that's going on today indicates that many people aren't heeding God's warnings as they dabble in witchcraft and other demonic practices. As for adulterers, we've already heard Malachi's message to the men who divorced their Jewish wives to marry pagan women. Thou shall not commit adultery. It's still in the Bible, no matter what marriage laws permit, no matter what the Supreme Court says, no matter what Congress passes, no matter what the state legislature passes, the passage passes, adultery is still wrong. We're told in the Bible, God commands us not to commit adultery. Those who swear falsely describes people who commit perjury by lying while under oath. Perjury violates the third commandment that shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. See, trust is a cement that holds society together. And when that cement crumbles, society falls apart. If we can't trust one another, one another's words and promises, then how can we live, live and work together safely? The oppressing of the poor and needy is a sin that the prophets condone, condemned with vehemence and needs to be condemned today throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Various passages tell us that God has special concern for widows and orphans and, and for those who are exploited and laborers who don't receive their wages. Finally, in verse 6, we're told that, his second coming, that in His second coming, we'll see God, that God is an unchanging God. What was the reason for these social abuses? The people who committed them had no fear of the Lord. They thought, they believed that God was just like them and that He would close His eyes to their sins and not judge them for breaking His law. But what does Psalm fifty twenty one say? It says, You thought I was just like you, but I will rebuke you and lay out the case Lay out the case before you. Now the next dispute we'll be reading about 
will point will pertain to Israel's disobedience to the law. So let's pick up where we left off and read from verse seven. Malachi chapter three, verse seven. Since the days of your father, you, you have turned from my statues. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments, the, the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse. Yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be, del- you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Referring to a long time ago, God reminds them, reminds the people, that in past generations, they all had disobeyed him. And as he had done with those other generations, he tells the people, of Malachi's day, return to me and I will return to you. However, when they heard Malachi's Malachi's call to return to the Lord, instead of asking, what should I do to repent then? How should I repent? They began to argue with God's servants. Their response was equivalent to saying, how can we repent if we don't know how we've sinned? Now the Lord might have responded to Israel's question by pointing out again to their insulting so-called worship, their treachery against one another, especially to their wives, their profaning the Lord's sanctuary by intermarrying with pagan idolaters, or their toleration or, or practice of sorcery, adultery, perjury, or economic exploitation of the defenseless. But what does he do instead? He brought, he brought to their attention in verse 8 another area in which their rebellion against God was manifesting itself, their, the withholding of tithes. Now under the Mosaic law, the Israelites were required to give a tenth of all produce and livestock to the Lord, or they could redeem it with money and add a fifth part. The tithes were in addition to numerous other offerings and were in acknowledgement of everything, that everything belonged to, the, to God and that he was the giver of all possessions. Now in the New Testament, it teaches that, believer, that believers are to give systematically, liberally, cheerfully, and proportionately. But no direct mention is, men, no direct mention is made of tithing. Rather, the suggestion is that if a Jew living under the law gave a tenth, how much more should a Christian living under grace give? So you see the reward for faithful tithing in the Old Testament was material wealth. The reward for faithful stewardship in the present age is spiritual riches. 
Therefore, in verse 9, he reminds, he reminds them that their true, their true failure was bringing a curse, uh, to bring their tithes was, was bringing a curse and was tantamount to robbing God and were suffering under a curse because of this sin. So in verses 10 through 12, God challenges them to test him by being faithful to their tithes. If, they, if they'd give, he promises to open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing without measure. This would produce a great testimony to the surrounding nations. In seeing their abundance, the nations would recognize God's blessing on Israel. Now, despite what the proponents of the prosperity gospel, what they teach, when it comes to the topic of tithing, we must understand why it was incorporated and what it means to us as Christians today. Again, as I mentioned, tithing was, was officially incorporated into the law of Moses and was part of Israel's worship. In bringing the tithes and offerings, the people were not only supporting the ministry of the temple, but they were also giving thanks to God for his bountiful provision for their own needs. As for what it means to us today, we know now that since God made and owns everything, he doesn't need anything that, that we bring to him. He doesn't need it. But when we obey his word and bring our gifts as acts of worship with grateful heart, it pleases him. It absolutely pleases him. Now, since the New Testament doesn't emphasize tithing, we have to be careful about being strict about it. Nevertheless, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, does say that giving is to be periodic, planned, proportional, and private. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 also tells us that giving must be generous. It must be given freely, and you must do it cheerfully. Now, it's possible for us, now, is, does that mean it's possible for us as Christians to rob God? Yes, when we don't give to Him what rightfully belongs to Him, whether it be our hearts or our finances. See, whenever we rob God, we always rob ourselves. To begin with, we rob ourselves from the spiritual blessings that always accompany obedience and faithful giving. But even more, the money that rightfully belongs to God that we keep for ourselves and never stays with us. What happens to it? Ends up going to the doctor, to the auto body shop, paying this bill or that bill, going out to, to eat, you know, buying junk that you don't need, or paying your taxes. Haggai 1.6 says, you have planted much, but harvested little. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. If our question is, if you're asking the question, how little can I give and still please God, then your heart isn't in the right place at all. We should have the attitude of some early Christians who essentially said, we're not under the tithe we can give more. Giving 
and financial management are spiritual issues, not only financial issues. So yes, giving is an act of faith. But God rewards that faith in every way. This isn't the reason we give. Because that kind of motivation would be selfish. If you give because it pays, it won't pay, says indu- said industrialist R.G. Letourneau. And he was right. We give because we love God and we want to obey Him. And because He is very generous to us. To us. When we lay up treasures in heaven, they pay rich dividends for all of eternity. Now, as we move on to this last section of this chapter, that in spite of these reassuring words that God spoke, Judah continues with one more disputation. So let's read about it now in this last section of chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 verse verse 13. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it's useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do, not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, prosper, they even test God and escape. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will, comp- I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. This last section begins with a final dispute between God and Israel concerning the value of serving Him and ends with a reassuring response to those who are truly and are faithfully serving Him. We see in verses 13 and 15 that the, guilty, that the people were guilty of harsh words against the Lord. For one thing, they felt that serving the Lord was drudgery. It was futile to be His servants. The New Living Translation puts verse 14, um, their complaint in this way. What's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying His commands? Or trying to show the Lord of heaven, of heaven's armies, that we're sorry for our sins. In other words, what's the point? What's the point of serving God when, those, when things just keep getting worse? But they had a second complaint. The pagan peoples, the pagan people around them who didn't know the Lord were in better shape than the people of Judah. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape, verse 15 says. Of course, it would have been difficult for the Jews to prove that they were godlier than those other nations 
because they were guilty themselves of disobeying the Lord. God would have blessed them if they had yielded themselves to him, but they preferred to have their own way and even complain what they didn't have or that what didn't happen. Nevertheless, verse 16 tells us there was a group of believers in this remnant and they remained faithful to the Lord. They feared the Lord, which means they held him in awe and worshipped the Lord Almighty. They met together and spoke to one another, not to complain, but to encourage and edify one another. Their assembly probably wasn't big, and they may have thought that very little was happening when they met together and when they worshipped, but God was paying attention. He was listening And guess what? He was keeping a record of their words, or he is keeping a record of their words in the book of remembrance. So although their neighbors may have laughed at them, God was pleased with them. And they weren't wasting their time because they were investing in eternity. Now, as I read that verse, it it brought me in, and not to bring you huge encouragement for us as a small church. Yes, there may be churches out there that have twice or maybe ten times the number of people that are coming here. And maybe you've gotten that chuckle every time you have told them that you come to this church and there's only a few people that come here or a handful of people or whatever it may be and, and, and they tell you or they start bragging to you about the numbers that they have. But regardless of what they think or what they say, I hope you're as convinced that as I am that we're a church that fears the Lord and we have a high regard for His name. That in spite of our numbers, our Sunday morning gatherers, gatherings is a place where, where, worship, where our worship to God is wholehearted, is wholehearted, and that we encourage and edify one another. See, this is what pleases God. And as long as we continue to do this, He will continue to bless us, whether there's five people here or whether there's 5,000 people here. He will continue to bless us. I absolutely believe that. The Lord then says in verse 17, They will be mine says the Lord of armies, my own possession. I think some, some translations say my, my jewel, my own possession on that day I'm preparing. God claimed them as his own, as he claims us. And God promised to spare them from a future judgment. Many of God's faithful servants become discouraged because the times are difficult. The crowds are small, and their work seems unappreciated. People who aren't really walking with the Lord seem to be getting more attention than are the faithful servants. But the day will come when God will reveal his own possession, and the faithful will receive their reward. Let me read to you a passage from the New Testament in in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And as I do, 
I want you to listen carefully. I want you to think about this passage and ponder it whenever you feel discouraged. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. A person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. But not only that, God also says that he will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves them, who serves him. Those of us who are fathers, who are dads, know that there's a big difference between a son who obediently works for him than a hired hand who is just there simply to do a job. Chapter 3 then ends with the Lord saying in verse 18 that on that day that he's preparing, everybody will see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The parallelism in this verse identifies the righteous with the one who serves God and the wicked with the one who does not serve him. If you go back to verse 17, you'll see that the righteous has nothing to his credit, but has been given compassion. Therefore, ultimate judgment is dependent on a man's relationship to God, which is determined by his response to God's invitation in verse 7 to return to him. There will come a time. There will come a time when the Lord will appear to sift and separate the wheat from the chaff. So my question is, will you be counted among the righteous who serve God or the wicked who don't? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 25 regarding that day. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and with all the angels with him, with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from, that fa- from the foundation of the world. And further down in that passage, Jesus continues by saying, Then he will also say to those who le- on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, I don't know what you have in your mind, your, the idea you have what, of what hell is going to be like. 
but it's not going to be a pretty place. It's going to be nothing but suffering, pain. I can't imagine a moment and uh, a day without God's grace, God's blessing falling on me. I need that in my life, and you ought to need it as well. On that moment, those who are suffering in hell, you're eternally separated from the Lord. There is no more blessing. There is no, there's nothing there. If you, think, if, if you think back when we read about Jesus when he was suffering on the cross, when he cried out to the Lord, when he cried out to his Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, in that brief moment, when all humanity's sins fell upon him, he was separated from the Lord, and that's what made him cry out in that, in that way, why, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Now imagine that for all eternity. Well, I can't. I want to be living with the Lord forever where his blessings are being poured, when he's just giving you eternal life, when, when there's, as the Bible describes, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, where there's just 100% joy. Hell is it going to be a pretty place. And when you hear people glorifying that there's going to be one big party there, they don't know what they're talking about. They absolutely don't know anything about, and they're lying to you. It's a lie from the devil telling you that it's going to be fine and you're going to be okay. I wouldn't want that. No one should want that for anybody. Again, I ask you, will you be among the sheep to his right or the goats to his left? I hope that your answer this morning is to be in the former, to be the sheep of his pasture. If you've gone astray, return to him and he will return to you. Again, not that he's ever left you, but you haven't felt his presence because you've walked away. You were the one that left him. Come to him and he will restore you. Joel chapter 2 verses 25 and verse 26 says this, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locusts ate. The young locusts, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. My people will never again be put to shame. So if that's you, if you've walked away, it's never too late to return. Never too, never too late to return to the comfort of his arms, to return and feel his blessings and know about his grace and to be in his grace. It's never too late. Come back and he will return to you. And for those who don't know him, I urge you just trust in him today. Open the door to your heart and allow him to make his home in you. And your life will be forever changed. It won't be the same. He will open up your eyes to see this world in a different way. 
you will have a new perspective. You will have a fresh vision of this world if you just allow him. You may be thinking, well, what about this? Or what about that? I have my friends and I have these people that count on me. And, and does that really matter? In the end, are they going to be with you when you're standing in God's judgment? No, they won't. It's just going to be you and him. Will you be saying, hey, hold on, Lord, my, my, my buddy here or my girlfriend here or, or, or this person here is going to tell you how good of a per- person I am. That ain't going to happen either. You're going to be accountable to him, you yourself and nobody else. And what are you going to say? What else, what other excuse do you have? I don't know, you can say a bunch of excuses, but he's just gonna, he's gonna say, hey, you know what, I don't wanna hear it. You had opportunity after opportunity to give your life over to me, to accept my son into your life, to, to believe in my son and get you rejected. So now I'm rejecting you. Depart from me, I never knew you. Again, what a sad day that would be. Come to him, know him, believe in him, trust in him. Fall in love with him. Don't let another day go by because this day could be your last day. Today could be the last day. You re- I don't want to scare you and I don't want to, but the, that's the reality of the situation. Are you ready to come before him? Everyone will be held accountable. So again, let me ask if, if you haven't trusted in him or if you walked away Today is the opportunity to return to Him, to love Him. And if that's you, and you're ready to trust the Lord, wherever you're at, bow your heads, close your eyes, and with all your heart, with all sincerity, pray this. God, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for what I've done for being disobedient, for walking away from you. Lord, I come before you now and ask that you forgive me. And you make me new, Lord. I believe you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for me. And I confess him now as Lord. I believe in my heart that He is God. And I thank you for forgiving me. I ask now that you fill me with your Spirit so that I may walk with you all the days of my life. Help me to see the world through your eyes. Help me to see people through, through your eyes, Lord. Fill me with your love. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've prayed that, welcome to the kingdom of God. Contact me, get a hold of somebody, one of your Christian friends, and find out 
how you can take those next steps in your walk with the Lord. But in the meantime, again, just get into the Word, get into Scripture, get in, you know, start to know the Lord. And the best way to do that is just to open up His, his Word and, and just start reading. But I want you to know that there will be challenges. But in the end, it's, it's all going to be worth it. It's all going to be worth it when, when, we're, when we stand with Him and He says, Good job, my good and faithful servant. And I hope those of us that are here that, this, again, this message spoke to you personally, that, that maybe some of the questions you've had have been answered. But the Lord here definitely wants to have a close relationship with, with, with you. He wants you to be a faithful servant. He wants you to give faithfully. And he wants us just to be able to be a people that has a, a heart for him that will edify one another. So I hope again as a church this, this passage also has encouraged you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to be here to look into Malachi chapter 3, Lord. And like always, there's still so much more that is in this chapter that we didn't quite cover, but I pray that everyone here will go back and reread your this chapter and, and, and that you'll show them more of what they ought to know, Lord. Lord, may we be a people that is known to be faithful to you, to be faithful servants. May we be a church that is an encouraging church, an edifying church, that when we speak about you, it's that there are words that come alive, that they come with power, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that that holy, so that your holy word, so that it may just abundantly overflow from us so that others may come to know you by our words, our actions, so that your kingdom will grow, Lord. Forgive us for our faults, those times we fall short. And give us the strength to stand right back up and walk with you. Lord, help us to fall more in love with you. Help us to see your glory so we may fall just in complete awe of you. Thank you again for this time. Thank you for allowing us to meet here, Lord. And as we move on, as I mentioned earlier, into our next stage of ministry, bless us there too, Lord. We trust that this is you, this is from you. 
and that you will meet every single need that we have, Lord. May we just be good servants of you, Lord. Bless this next time of fellowship. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.